Hello, I'm Carrie Gard, and welcome to Tea Time with Tech Marketing Leaders. The only way freemium works is developing that journey to get your freemium customer to a paid customer, to that VIP super duper paid customer. Happy New Year, y'all. 2023. What's new? Let's see. I got a kitten. His name is Otis. He's four months now. So stinking cute. He's so cute. He's into everything. He's into everything. Favorite thing? Wires. Hmm. Yes. Definitely a challenge. What else is new? Uh, my kids are back to school. They are in year two, which equivalents to first grade in the States. They're doing great reading. They're reading mind-blowing, like fluently, like not sounding out each word. My son reads to me at bedtime now. It's just wild, wild. Oh, what else is new? Oh, my business partner is back from paternity leave. Q4 went really well, but very happy to have him back in the pocket with the sales team. Very exciting. Let's go. Let's go. 2023. Speaking of let's go, you're not here to listen to me jibber jabber, which I'm great at. You love it. You are actually here to listen to me hang out with tech marketers to hear their stories, how they got started, challenges they're facing, and what they know best when it comes to the craft of marketing. So let's get to it. This week, I have a very interesting guest. He's someone who thinks like a marketer, but doesn't necessarily consider himself a marketer. He's a marketpreneur. I just made that up. It's not a real thing, but I think it describes it. He's actually the senior manager of product-led growth for startups, nonprofits, and developers at Okta. He gets to act like an entrepreneur inside the organization while helping them accelerate engagement of their product offering. He's got such a fun job. And it lends itself to the out-of-the-box thinking, which he's done a ton of. It's 2023. The world is not what it once was, which makes this podcast perfect timing. Peter Wheeler joins me to discuss product-led marketing growth, PLG, how to build your product in a way that does the heavy marketing lift for you. He's got great stories and examples of how he's done this time and time again, and he shares resources from his own experience as well as from other uh, other people that he's learned PLG from. So let's get creative. Let's start thinking outside the box and let's see how we all can implement a little PLG in our products. Let's take a listen. Peter, thank you for joining me on Tea Time with Tech Marketing Leaders. Absolutely. Yeah, excited to have you. Before we dive into our conversation, which I think is going to be incredibly helpful for folks, especially now, given the shift in the uh, financial atmosphere, so to speak, in terms of giving people some great ideas and how they can help their businesses grow um, in a really valuable way to their customers. Before we get there, tell me your story, story, Peter. What do you do and how did you get there? Okay, so currently... I work in the customer identity product unit, which is Auth0. Uh, we make like a, a science product. If you log in somewhere, you've probably used us, uh, especially Okta in the workforce. Uh, but I represent the customer side product. We make that product is a solution for developers that they use to make applications and websites more secure, uh, but also easier for stakeholders to access. Um, I lead marketing, revenue development, and special initiatives on that side of the business with our social impact product offering, our startups program offering, and a strategic initiative to help developers integrate our services into more of their work. That's what I'm doing currently. How did I get here? Yeah, been a serial, <laughs> I've been a serial <laughs> entrepreneur my entire life. Yeah, that was a mouthful to begin with. Uh, been a serial entrepreneur my entire life. And... Uh, Started my first business when I was 16, drop shipping car stereo on the internet. And I'm going to date myself. This was back in the late 90s. Uh, so it was even before anything dot com, e com. We didn't have those terms back then. And went through many industries philately. I ran the catalog division of the world's largest philatelic auction house. Uh, was in automotive for a long time with BMW, Mini Cooper, uh, both being a general manager of a store and uh, launching their lifestyles and after sales divisions in different types of regional areas. Um, started a locally owned restaurant, promotional platform, uh, just been all over the place. Gave birth to a beer for Miller Coors, and I'm looking forward to uh, helping with their balloon race team later this uh, this month. And uh, 
yeah, it's just, I've been all over the place. I needed to get a real job a few years back. I'd been engaged for five years and my fiance at the time was like, I'm not getting married to an entrepreneur. I needed a little bit more stability to start a family. And I respect and understand that. And I did then as well. So uh, I buckled down and I went to work in the geospatial arena for a firm that uh, did both a self-service freemium product-led growth platform, uh, but then also did it using commercially supported open source, which mm. for me was a category that was pretty pretty cool and pretty, yeah. pretty wild because uh, we all kind of know open source software, but then there's actually a business around making open source software business technology. Uh, I was there for a couple of years and uh, we were acquired and I took the opportunity to take some, some time off uh, and become a stay-at-home dad. I, I was really missing time with my, at, at that time, year and a half old daughter and uh, COVID hit. So then I really knuckled down as a stay-at-home dad and I had made a pledge to do consulting, but for uh, over half of my consulting to be pro bono for nonprofits during that time. And I really started to love the space. Uh, I like many people were like, I would support, I'd write a check, maybe I'd sit on a young friends board or something like that, but never like really got my hands dirty outside of regular volunteering and being able to do what they call skilled volunteering. I don't necessarily like that term, uh, really gave me insight into what that space was. COVID started clearing up, found a great school for my daughter. Everybody was masking. Uh, we were feeling good about everything. And I started looking for entrepreneur and residence roles. By that time, there was actually a category where you could be a full-time employee entrepreneur. How do you beat that? And I lucked out and found it, this role with Auth0 where they were looking for an intrapreneur, somebody to assist in building this social impact program that they have. And I jumped on it. And I think we mutually lucked out and they chose me for the role. And I've been there for 15 months now, since April of 21. And uh, it's been an absolute blast. So that's how I got here. Wow. I mean, the journey and the ride is so cool. Um, I I have to come back to this because you said it and it sort of bogged my brain a little bit. Open source, you, you supported open source products, but from a business standpoint? So commercially supported open source being that you would have like a professional services contract or managed services offering work that we would do. If a company was like, we would really like to use this particular piece of open source software, Mm -hmm. the company would provide engineers and programmers to make the proper modifications or help set up or do training or long-term support for that software that nobody was buying right in the case of this organization they were also basically doing a i'm going to change the terms i'm going to make it more standardized terms here but they were reskinning or repackaging an existing open source software piece putting their own features into it and reselling it Got uh, it. I hate to make it sound like it's like it was a, a bedazzled jeans etsy store but that very much is what it is and There are certain like codes of conduct and ethics and different ways of doing the licensing. Uh, One of the things that I really loved about it was how uh, engaged that type of organization is with the developer community Mm -hmm. and how the company could take customers and customer requests and align them to maybe requests that are made by the open source community and be able to push those code updates that they did as a paid project to the open source project like making it wholly sustainable. And when you really think about it, you then have an unlimited footprint of developers and a product roadmap that is determined by not only the people that are building it, but the people that are using it and also people that are paying to use it. And I just, that was so awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, so I'm familiar awesome. with open source and my, my husband contributes quite a, quite a bit to open source products, you know, but the whole point of open source is that they don't generally make money they're open to the public for anybody to use so it was just sort of like tell me more on how this thing is sustainable in the way that it's been commercialized and so very very cool in that it's commercialized but it's still in the sense of the intent of open source which is that anybody can contribute to it in a really thoughtful meaningful way 
Um, that's really cool. All right, tell me, Peter, one challenge you're currently having. I, on a marketer's level, on, on like a personal level as a marketer. So people often joke that I'm like Gaston with the life path of Forrest Gump. And the majority of the work that I've done is like this, this big out there experiential style stuff. And now that things are, we're just now getting into being comfortable doing interactive events and trade shows and everything else. And they still, you risk it being a super spreader event every single time. Um, my heart breaks. It's hard for me. That's that's where like all of my glory stories from marketing come from are are in that. Um, the the revenue numbers, the percentages, the increase in this and the increase in that, like all the after the fact business case stuff is cool. And that's something to talk to about maybe with a client or an employer. Uh, but when you're sitting at a dinner table and you can say, hey, I gave birth to a beer one time. Here's how. That's a totally different thing than saying like, oh yeah, I was able to, uh, with a six figure campaign, healthily bring in nine figures of recurring revenue over a six month period doing blank, blank, blank. Nobody cares about that. Um, so it's just very, it's very interesting. Like you see over my shoulder, I turned Mini Coopers into food trucks. I can talk about that, make a lemonade stand out of Mini Coopers. Very cool. A lot of fun. But what was the business case? You'd be so bored. <laughs> And uh, that's not that's me. A, I'm all about the numbers. So I'm well, curious. I think, I my mind immediately goes there. What was the business case? How did it do? Did it actually like build revenue? Tell me more. Right. Yeah. And, and I get, I'll say this to, to the general public, the, the non-marketers or the non-salespeople. It's like a boring where we really want to push like, what was the cool thing we did? So for me, that's, that's where my personal heartbreak is. Uh, where I'm standing right now, it's like so much runway and so much green space in not only the categories that we address, but the type of business we're in. And I'm in heaven. I mean, like there's yeah. no, there's anything that's standing in my way turns out to just be a fluffy cloud. So <laughs> yeah, it's a great place. Where does that, where does that come from in terms of like sky's the limit, nothing but runway sort of feel for where you are? Is that because the audience, like, is it, is it just this perfect match of audience and product and, and creativity, or is it endless budget? What's sort of that runway for you? So I'm going to, I'm going to lead with the thing that, that I usually say at the beginning of all these, these opinions are my own. They are not of past nor present employers. Uh, and I might misquote something or exaggerate a number or two, but that's just for effect or to get a point across. So uh, don't don't hold me to it. You can always ping me on LinkedIn if you need clarification. Um, where the where that green space is, where that fun for me is, is that categorically, like this identity product stuff that we're in, everybody needs it. If you're making something like to secure it or to make it easier to get into for the right people, but not the wrong people, or, you know, just uh, laws that are put into place, whether it be HIPAA, if you're managing medical records or GDPR, if you're operating in Europe or uh, PCI, if you're taking payments in any fashion, like there's, there's just, those are simple compliance methods that you have to think about. And then when you look at a global scale, every country, even every state in the United States has some other thing that this product influences, or I wouldn't say influences, is influenced by and keeps up with over time so that when you're building what you're building, when you're innovating in whatever industry you're innovating in, you don't have to worry about that extra element. So for me, like the, the engagement, like trying to sell somebody on it saying, oh, you need this because of the type of product I get to represent right now, it's very set it and forget it. Uh, it's very easy to do a subjective term, but most people would find it because we're famous for our documentation. We're famous for our community. We're famous for our customer support. Uh, it is easy to do. And that, that for me is the awesome part. Regular business stuff like budget and teams I get to work with and everything else, that's all stellar and, and great. And I'm very appreciative of it, but the product itself, like what it offers at the core makes my job a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, with everything you were saying, 
I feel like for some people or marketers, that's almost too much runway. It it would feel very daunting. Like, oh my gosh, I have all these audiences to consider. I have all these countries to think about. I have all of these elements to like figure out how to sell to all these different people. But for you, it's like the dream, it sounds like. And so the other half of that, what makes that dream work is that I got to come into these special audiences. When I was hired, it was exclusively for social impact for this particular product at, at Auth0. This was before the merger. And social impact organizations, or we'll call them nonprofits in the United States, uh, charities where you're at, um, not-for-profits if you want to say it wrong, uh, they're, they're very unique. There's a nonprofit version of everything, which is crazy to think about. And it's the only vertical that is described by the thing it doesn't do. Mm -hmm. Like we don't refer to veterinarians as not a restaurant. They're called veterinarians. So that, that small little piece of what audience I got to work with, they're, they have restricted funds. They don't have staff like crazy. You were talking earlier about like using shared services engineering or shared services IT. Um, where the team isn't yours, and maybe it's spread across a couple different organizations, um, you're not profiling. Like I, I've never been a fan of personas, and I think that comes from experiential, where your your customer is your unique customer. Um, here we try to do it's a little bit of a blend into jobs to be done. So we're looking at what the end result is. You have a blank and you're looking to blank. Oh, you don't want to do password resets anymore, or you want to make sure that there's uh, uh, two forms of identification that are applied to be able to get into something. Uh, those, are, those are what we're solving for. And we're not doing it product-led. We're like, hey, here's this feature called MFA. And what it is, is that we have all these factors of authentication and no, because it's confusing. And with the, the product marketing framework that they, they gave me runway to write, I'm working with mostly an unaware audience. They don't even know that this stuff exists and they don't know that they're using it all the time and they don't know the benefits they're finding from it. And I'm able to build them into an aware audience. And then within aware, I'm showing them how to use it and what that end result is for them. And that's really cool. So that's that's what makes this type of thing work is that I got to start in the audience that I started in. Now this is expanded into our whole product like growth section. This is expanded and with that it's our self-service product. And it's also expanded into our startups product and our startups product offering. Again, startups, you can be a founder. What do they say? The chief cook and bottle washer? Isn't that the, the joke that people What it made? feels like. <laughs> And, and you, you get it, you're an entrepreneur. And I always joked that entrepreneur to most people just means unemployed. So you, you really have to, to be able to speak to that person and identify their needs and identify their form of communication and intake. And that's what's made this work for me. It sounds like and you started with one, with one audience though, which is, I think, and then you were able to scale, like figure out what worked for nonprofits and then say, where else can this apply? Which I think is really helpful and not feeling blown by trying to tackle the whole elephant, essentially. Um, I also think the other thing you did, which I really love is, and I, I feel like people say this over and over and over again, but we're never quite sure how to approach it. And you're giving us a very clear roadmap. So I want to come back to that is it's just problem solution jobs mm -hmm. to be done. What do people have to do on a daily basis? And how can we like relinquish some of that pain in what we have to offer? We don't need to talk about how, what we have to offer. We just need to talk about how we can solve this specific job for them and do it for them and get it done. They don't set it and forget it. Right. We're scratching the itch, not showing them, like building a scratcher in front of them and showing them why the pieces and purposes are and everything else. It's you have an itch. This is how it's scratched. This is the damage that's left behind. This is the way we prevent it. Done and done and done. And for nonprofits who are short staffed, I imagine like having something as small, what might feel as small as authentication, which is really important, right? So what they might have to do on a daily basis, it may, might not be a lot of work or iterative, but 
to have this taken off their plates to know that it's just in good hands and it's done. And one less thing for them to have to worry about is from a mentality taxation standpoint, a huge relief. Right. I'm a, I'm a huge enemy of tech debt or how I refer to it in, in other engagements I had of more of a true debt uh, because you, you're right. There's, there's stress involved. One of the things that I love about as a Midwesterner, one of the things that I love about the nonprofit audience is that a good referral is worth a thousand hours of research. And if, you know, my first year here, I spent almost every moment, not on marketing, but on customer experience and customer journey advocacy as an element of marketing. And that is what helps the numbers. That is what helps uh, return. That is what prevents like this, this issue of abandonment or, you know, what's worse is you go through all this effort, make this huge investment on your side of product demos and phone calls and sending gifts through your ABM and figuring out your CPC and all like all these things that marketers are worried about. Let's spend as much money as possible and fill that funnel. Then you're dropping it. You're letting it go. And you're not building the enablement materials. You're not doing the follow-up on the tail end that shows like, hey, just checking in. Is it working? Did you, did you get where you needed to get? And on a self-service product, selling that into an organization is near impossible. I really lucked out that I, had, that I came into an organization that already believed in that. Uh, but if you're working with product-led growth, if you're working with a freemium model, uh, convincing everybody, that, yeah, we need to spend a little bit more on our self-service customers, you're going to get an eye roll. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but that's one of the things that's made it work and we have success stories and it's very easy to call up and get a case study. And it's very easy to take that case study and make the narrative positive, positive about the customer. Nonprofits are awesome to work with because they're doing awesome things. And I love just talking to the customer, not even for the purpose of any kind of case study and being able to tell their story and then saying, okay, one sentence in this 10 page case study we can say our element did blank to help them get to this solution. Maybe we save them a hundred hours of programming. Maybe we save them 10 grand. Maybe we, maybe we halted some sort of breach that they were having or improved some sort of process and improved their security culture or posture. That's really cool. And um, that's the tech debt of the, the stress relief that we, that you get to help them with. Exactly. Um, because they're making this huge investment. The time yeah. to set up the, the, this, this, that. Thank you for catching me because I was rambling, but I, I'm passionate about it. No, and I love that. And I want to, I want to talk about, I want to dig into the the model you have in terms of self service, which I think is important because there's elements that come to that. But why it's successful? And you mentioned early on that there was three things about your specific product that makes self service possible: documentation. Customer support, customer support, and community. Is that, am I missing yeah. anything? Or do you feel like those are the three elements that have really made this self-service to nonprofits possible? I would, and I would say self-service for a developer-centric product possible as well. Um, in, in For the nonprofit community element, there are organizations that we work with externally that are stewards to the space. Uh, they might be um, continuing education platforms. Like my, my favorite is We Are For Good. Uh, Becky, John, and Julie are just kicking butt there uh, doing this next generation of training. There are tons of marketplaces out there. There are ones that are independent uh, that my favorite right now is Pond. They piggy bank for nonprofit organizations. I will not go into that, but definitely check out their website. Uh, and then there are industry-led ones, like the folks over at Monday have started Digital Lift. And that's a type of community that's completely different than what we control mm -hmm. in our own product. It's a community that we can contribute to, both by being a product that's represented in one of those communities, but also sponsoring something or you know just putting that advertising dollar or that donation dollar or our volunteer time doing a hackathon with employees the nonprofit audience is really cool just for uh, how how wildly experimental we can be and again from an experiential background that's important for me like how much hands-on how much with people how much interactive it's not minutia 
at that point. It's like this, this true proving of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really, it's really important that you mentioned that this is for these three things specifically help the developer centric community. But I also feel like from, you know, when you're talking about security and products and the audience we're talking to in terms of marketers who are for brands of cybersecurity um, and vendors, right? Their products are going, need to go to people who can implement them. And so having a very, having these three things, even though it's not for developer audiences, for a very technical audience still feels very, very relevant to me. Like how far documentation can go so that they don't have to get on the phone with customers more every five seconds. Or if they do, customer support can turn around with a very clear thing to help them get to where they're going as quickly as possible. Because time, especially cyber, as you know, is of the essence. Like we can't mess with our tech on a regular basis. We need this to work and we need to work. We need to trust that it's going to do what it said it's going to do and it's going to be implemented correctly. So to me, documentation makes a ton of sense. And I imagine it makes everybody's life easier, not just on the customer support and developer side, but even as a marketer, like how much content you have to work with when it comes to the way your product makes everybody's life easier to your point, right? Getting that job done. Right. And and that's content that I, in no way, can take credit for that that comes from a really solid product team from a really solid customer success team from a really solid developer engagement developer relations team market you know business marketing product marketing they do kick out those materials as well but it's it's a full company lift to develop a culture that cares about your customer and and i really lucked out being in an organization like that where they've given me freedom and where I've really been able to make an impact is working with the customer stakeholders. So I talked about that whole unaware and aware audience that that I built into our product marketing framework. We have cybersecurity checklists. They don't really mention our product. They are oriented around, there's a personal one that a nonprofit or a startup, anybody, because it's publicly available on our website, they can take it and co-brand it and say, hey, Stakeholders, whether it be employees, program recipients, volunteers, cousins, check this out. Check these boxes. What's your Wi-Fi password look like? Do you have post-it notes with passwords on your monitor? Do you share passwords? Like simple things that you and I think are simple, but not that aren't culturally like there yet and being able to help with that. That's like next level documentation. That's the, the, the next step. And then also doing workplace ones and that builds us up into that aware audience. And then that aware audience understands why it's important and why they should engage the unaware audience and how it makes everybody's life easier. And that's, you're really developing culture at that point. And that's really, that's the framework. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't know that people take the time as an organization, right? Like luckily your organization is built from this. Um, I actually think my full disclosure, I think my husband actually worked on the documentation when he was at Auth0. Um, Thank you. Before it, got, before it got picked up by Okta. Um, I mean, that's all he did was the documentation of how the product gets implemented for developers across all the different systems, right? It's a heavy lift. I think he actually was able to automate a lot of it. Um, because he's a programmer and that's just what he does. He immediately figures out, what can I automate? The documentation's um, a heavy lift. So the implementation is not. Yes. Right. Well, no, I mean, even with the documentation, he was right, able right, to right. find elements that could be automated so that it was up, it could be kept up to date easily and regularly. Right. Um, but that that being at the core, right, the entire organization has to rally around that. So when we're talking to marketers about having an easy product to sell this might be an opportunity to say, hey, have we thought about how we, and, and to your point, it could be, it could start with the marketing team of creating a simple checklist of, have you start, have you thought about doing these things for your, as a single person or within your company or whatever to ensure your security, right? And then it can bleed down deeper versus the way your company did it, which was sort of the other way around. Either way, the point is the power of documentation can really lend itself to building that trust and to starting that culture and that community, which ultimately lends itself to an easier sell, an easier way to get people to 
take that from unaware to aware and starting to figure out how to use your product on um, and begin that process. So, which then leads to customer some customer support because then it's once you have that team to do the customer customer support with the right documentation it makes that easier, and then you're able to build community around it. So, I just loved how you set Okta up in this lovely way of like it's my makes my job so much easier because I have these things that I can build upon. Right, and I got to speak to a different like the audience that I started with was marketers. Does that make sense? Selling no, say more. Integration product product to a marketer. Is it no no RevOps to do with it. Um, but there are things like profile enrichment, where when people are using social sign-on, you can start collecting that information that you beg for, like birthdays and correct email addresses and and things. You ask permission for it, of course, but um, that's that's something very cool. Um, yeah. A lot of the other terms sound scary, like progressive profiling sounds very scary. It's not a scary thing, uh, but it's very helpful in a marketing mindset. And nonprofits are nine tenths sales and marketing, aka like searching down donations, recurring donations, building systems around that, and then programs. Uh, so we were able to speak to those two end solutions. Uh, but yeah, I got to start with marketers. I got to try and explain a very tech heavy piece of a piece of equipment, not an actual thing you buy uh, to an audience that likes to flip. Nobody, no offense to anybody here because I'm one of you, but you know, flick switches and look at reports and make pretty pictures and speak eloquently. And we're a really yeah. hard audience to sell to. Right. Yeah. So yeah, right. no, I hear you on that. Um, yeah. So is so this your graceful transition into product-led growth? It may be, it just may be, because I think this is what, it, what it's all coming down to, right? Like when we're talking about product-led growth, we're talking about these three core things being at the center of that and then allowing your product to sort of do the work for you in terms of growth um, and for, and the freemium model, which is what I want to get into. So my transition right now is essentially what's happening in the world, which is everybody's tightening their belts from a budget standpoint and marketers have to get scrappy again, right? There was a little, money was a bit free flowing and budgets were, were booming and ad spend was up and SEO was kicking butt. And now everybody's like, we don't know what's going to happen in the world. And maybe we're in a recession, maybe we're not, nobody's quite sure. So let's, let's just either keep things flat or tighten things up. I mean, with all these layoffs as well. And so marketers have to get a bit scrappy again. And when we talked, Peter, we came, we came across the product-led growth and the freemium model. And I was like, what a great way for marketers to get back to building up their audiences again, especially with cookies going away. Like what a great way to get experimental, to bring new people in to, um, and, but it's scary. And so, and when we first did, you know, the reason why we got started talking about this is because I worked with a company 10 years ago and they had a freemium model and they were blaming us for the fact that people weren't converting. They were, they were signing up for the product left, right, and center, but then they weren't buying into the business model. They were just saying freemium for a while. And so we had a lovely conversation about that. And that's where I want to sort of sit today is like, as marketers continue to figure out like what this new world looks like, or even for right now, what are some ways that they can get creative? And it's actually going back to what people were doing 10 years ago, which is what you're doing now in product-led growth and freemium model with, with Okta and nonprofits. So why, why are you, why do you believe so much in this model and how, and why does it work for you? I, I lucked out in this scenario. So I came in on social impact. The VP I report to is also in charge of startups. Woohoo, I, I know that category, I've been there many more times than I really want to think about. And this product-led growth self-service arena with freemium product, and it doesn't work for everybody. I mean, there's, there's current news about abuses in programs like that and programs having to be shut down. And I don't think it's necessarily like, oh, a small group ruined it for all of us style thing. That's not the case at all. Um, but I come from what I consider to be like one of the original product-led growth categories, I spent a lot of time in the automotive industry. And 
to get that real basic understanding of product-led growth, people test drive cars before they buy them. Why can't they test drive your product? Why can't they test drive it as a customer? Why can't they just lease it? Your demo is never going to show them what they need to know. They're never going to have the headaches that they could experience as a regular user, nor do they get the glory that they experience as a regular user. And I, th I think about that every time I do this, I'm like, oh, this is just, this is a lot like the car industry. This is very much like it. And you think about graduation, like everybody's like, oh, if we do a freemium model, they're just, they're going to be leeches forever. We have this succubus attached to our business. That's not true. You're making an investment into this, this up and coming organization or this stable organization whose needs are going to grow. And like in the car industry, you help this teenage kid out, you give them a discount on a repair. Now you've got a loyalist and they come back and they buy their next car. And then they've got a real good job and they buy that real, that fancier version of car. And then they've got kids and they're buying multiple cars. And then they're getting that retirement level and buying the biggest, baddest thing they can get. And they're referring friends at the time and everything else. Like it's, it's ambassadorship for your brand. If your product is so good that it can be your ambassador, do it. We can think of certain like warehouse stores where people walk around with shopping carts and those carts always have a bag or a box of whatever somebody wearing a hairnet and white gloves at the end of an aisle is giving out. Let your product speak for itself. That's all you're doing right here. We package it uniquely because we have special audiences and I can get into that in a little bit. But the simple thing about product-led product, product -led growth is that you eventually get a product qualified lead. In my XDRs, we love how this stuff comes in. They know the product, they know how to use it, they know the purposes of it. At that point, it's just like order taking. Like we think we need these features, can you explain them? Or we know we need this, this is our budget, how do we make this work? As opposed to like starting from the base of, are you even aware? Because it's, that's just not the case anymore. We took care of it with a very simple introduction. It sounds like you're talking about two different things in terms of, it, I mean, it's all free, but I mean, no, it's a, it's trial, a trial versus the free, the, the base model, so to speak, right? Like when you test drive a car, you get all the features and you're giving it a good run. Um, and then you buy it and then you get all, you get to, you know, drive off of those features forever, but you don't, but if you're looking at a freemium model, you're not necessarily getting to your point, you know, you get those upgrades, you know, once you reach sort of that stage of needing more then you buy more or you say, okay, I've been using this freemium model for a while and I know how it works, but now I need more. And what does that mean? I just want to be clear, like there is two sort of avenues you can go here. And some people do try you get a two weeks of trial and then you can either buy it or not. Some people have it where it's free, try it to get more features to see what that's like and then decide what you need. You're just poking holes in my analogy. <laughs> that's, you're just, you're just back in the car thing. And that's no, why. I love the car analogy. I think that's fantastic because that's yeah. talking about longevity. But I, I do want to say like there, there are- Also certain... when you go on the test drive, and I don't mean to speak over you, but when you go on that test drive, you might go, I don't really, I don't need a heated steering wheel. I live in Florida. So then you're looking, you're going down and like with our sliding scale self-service product, that's, that's what we're accomplishing. So you come in, you do the free trial and the free trial is like this. We'll start you at the top and you can work your way down. Here's every feature you can possibly have. You have it for this chunk of time. It is free. Mm -hmm. When the time runs out, you're going to move to whatever the free band is, right? whatever that tier may be. In the meantime, you have the option of using the sliding scale to figure out what level you need to be at for your usage and lock in at that. And then when the free period's over, we'll start billing you for that and right size your features and functionality and bandwidth and everything else. And that that I think is what makes self-service product and freemium style product work. And the, that next level thing 
that I love is the ability, and this doesn't, none of this works in, in all, in all cases, right? but something that also works for us is the ability to change it month to month. So if we're working with an organization that might have a humongous trade show or, or gathering, and they need a lot of users all at once, they slide that scale up to massive users and they pay for that usage at that time. And then they bring it back down. And you see that in everybody's moving to the cloud. I have no idea what that means, but they, they everybody has to be on the cloud. And I know in instances where I've been in or on a cloud, it's been paying for what I use. So not, not buying something. And this is where you're talking about uh, purse strings. And yeah. I think everybody is, is moving to a usage-based model. Now, modernization is what has allowed us to do that for sure. Uh, and it's very exciting to be able to represent products that do that. Um, but yeah, that's where we're in a really cool spot is that usage-based model. Trade shows over, you don't need all these logins anymore. Boom, you scale it back down to a basic, or maybe you just go right back to free because you didn't. You still don't need everything that's on it. I think that I, I think this is a really key differentiator and I love how you're explaining it because I feel like some people will, you know, talk are are okay doing the trial, the trial piece, but never going to give their product away for free. So can you tell us why why free? Even if you like you were like put like five dollars on it. I mean, what's the benefit to it being completely available? Not completely in terms of all the features, but like having some piece of your product free. Okay, so I'm going I'm to scale back to personal opinion because I have no clue. This is a good question I'm going to go back to my boss about and ask. But in my personal opinion, faith in the product. That you're offering something that somebody will find value in. And we've, and we've seen this over the past decade as the whole like buy me a coffee style platforms have come out, whether it be like a medium article, you read the whole thing all the way through, maybe you subscribe and then that person gets a little bit of cash. Like there, there's, there's always been this presence of putting something out there and letting others find value in it. So that's faith in what you're doing. I think that's one of them. Another reason that you would do it is that I, there's this old misnomer that if you don't attach a dollar value to something that people won't respect it and that free isn't really free isn't worth it. If it's free, then it's not any good. You haven't explained what it is well enough if their perception of something being free is not good. Otherwise, free samples wouldn't exist. People try mm -hmm. it and they like it or they don't like it, but at least they were able to okay. try it. And again, we're back in the trial aspect of it. But if you look at freemium, it's just somebody making laps and just getting the free scoop of popcorn or wherever it may be jerky there at the end of the aisle over and over and over again. And there's nothing wrong with that. I feel like people have moved away from it though, because, you know, like going back to my original scenario, it's well, people, you know, and I think you mentioned this too, you sort of feel like you have these, I hate this word, but I'm going to use it. Um, like leeches on your. Let's, let's call them freeloaders. Freeloaders. There we go. That's, a kind, that's the kind of. never going to upgrade. Like, I mean, in your experience, and I know you're not speaking on behalf of the product, but like in your experience, and I mean, you clearly believe in this model. It sounds like that's not actually the case that people do to your point, using the car analogy, people will find that moment where they got to tip over and they'll scale up. Uh, they might scale back down. Like I did it. I use this, this product that I love for online signatures. Um, and at one point I was sending out so many contracts. I had to scale up. Okay. I need this thing right now. I need to send out more than three contracts a month. I need, I need more. And then I got to a point where, okay, things have calmed down. I don't need three. And they let me scale back. And I look forward to the day that I get to scale up again. But wow, did they earn my trust when I was able to scale down, which some companies oh, well, you're on the annual plan and so you can't scale down and now you're stuck with however many subs you know, subscriptions you have until your contract renews, which is so frustrating. That's just theft, but yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> but you're, the, the trust you're, building. Yeah, you're, you're hitting it. Well, one of them is advocacy. Okay, so now you've got this individual. We're acting as if 
everything's frozen in time. So you've got, so what? You've got an individual that's using it for free right now. And maybe they use it for free for six years. Yes, that, that does affect you. That does affect some sort of bottom line. But if, again, if you built the product properly, you've put your offerings together properly, it's a minimal investment in this person's goodwill, this person being an advocate. They're, they're somebody else's expert. They're somebody else's nephew that knows about computers. Let's ask him. That's, that's who they're going to. Oh, I use this platform. I'm on the free plan, but for what you need, they have this, this, and this because they're, they're aware of it. Mm -hmm. So that's really good. You've got this advocate. You've got somebody that's a contributor. You have a regular user, which means you're getting regular user feedback. You're getting regular user data and information that you wouldn't be getting by hoarding your product. Like if you just really step back and said, okay, if I got blank for free, what would I be doing with it? Would I be giving back? Would this be my first choice when I need more? Like where, where, where does the relationship really fall? And it's really sad for me that we're assuming the worst of use cases. We're assuming the worst intentions from our end users. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm not going to quote any kind of psychologist on it because I'd get it wrong, but like, it's not, it's not healthy because that's kind of you painting a picture of yourself. If you yeah. go into it, thinking about how you would ruin a scenario, that's, that's something that you, that you fix, that you plan against, but that's not what you plan for. Right. You, you plan for the good. I could talk about just this why all day, but I think for marketers who might not feel like they have a lot, because it's on the product and, and the product side and marketers don't always have impact there. Um, but to make a freemium model work, there is marketing that needs to support it to make it vi viable, right? I mean, we talked about the company side and what the company can do to make it viable from the documentation, the customer success in the community. But from a marketing side, how do you help that customer on their journey and continuing to support them? I mean, the old, we're talking about adding value to our customers, right? Like everything around demand gen and how the market shifted away from leads, 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 leads to more of how can we support you? How can we give you more information on what you need? How can we help you make the ultimate decision that you need to make? I mean, this seems like the no brainer. Well, just give them the product. Yeah, Let them see if they need it. A, value doesn't have to be a reward. Like this mm -hmm. value as a marketer. So let's, we're, we're looking at it. Okay. Somebody's coming in, they're seeing our product. We should probably be charging for it at any level. Even this completely basic addition we should be charging for and not letting anybody try it for free and, or not letting anybody use it for free. We keep getting this whole free trial mindset, not let anybody use it for free because we see that it has a lot of value. We need to, the value we need to provide our customers is respect and say, we recognize you're doing something cool. We want you to recognize us as being a part of it. Mm -hmm. And marketing in a fashion where people say, oh, wow, they're willing to give this free addition that is sufficient for what I'm trying to do so that I can do what I do. That is great marketing architecture right there. Just to, just to phrase it that way. It doesn't have to be that you have the best free fireworks show and that there's the cheap seats all the way in the back. And if you want to watch it for free, you stand outside the fence. It, it's really just about like respecting how your product is utilized and the in individuals that are choosing your product to get where they're going. Perfect segue, because let's talk about the individuals and the audience and how this can pertain depending on, because one of the things we talked about, which I think is really powerful in the audience is you talked initially about nonprofits, but you also are now sort of dipping your toe or maybe you're fully fledged now after 15 months at Okta, um, talking about small businesses and startups specifically and how you're supporting them. So how, how is it the same packaging for each audience in terms of, you know, the the getting the, how did you frame it? It was like the jobs to get done 
the itch they're scratching, you're helping them scratch sort of from a problem solution standpoint. And when you're talking about the freemium product-led growth model, how are you supporting these audiences in that way? Is it giving each audience the same thing and just saying it differently? Is it changing the model to fit the audience? So with the, the nonprofits, we support them across the board. So like with Auth0, the customer identity product, the free plan is available to anyone. I mean, they're, they're the regular embargoes that we all have to, should be doing um, and, and, you know, the why nots, but it's free. There's a free plan, period. Auth0.com forward slash pricing. There's a free plan. Sign up, create your tenant, download some documentation, play with it, put it on your WordPress website, whatever you want to do. Great. Beyond that, we have our self-service product and our enterprise product. Now in social impact, we were part of Pledge 1%. We have a focus on contributing and giving back with volunteering and with donations. And part of the donations is product donation. So we discount. And on the self-service, it's half price. And on and discounts of gross term, let's say cost savings. Uh, and on our enterprise, the cost savings is up to 35%. That's currently what we're doing. Um, in the startups, it's a completely different packaging. And when I came on, it was like $99 a year and you got an enterprise contract and then you would, and it was like a full blown, just so long as you were part of it. And then you had to really earn it on the tail end or pay for it full price when you got out of it. But, um, you know, it's... It's that scenario of, uh, with that, it was packaged for that type of business. And even now, so Eli Rabbick is the guy that runs it for us at the moment, or it's not a fair way of saying it. Eli Rabbick is running our startups program and he's rebuilt it in a, in a much better usage scenario and still in that self-service, product-led, freemium, whatever, however you want to call it, model, where these organizations are getting support in their most crucial time. It's the pre-series A, you're worried about headcount, you're worried about floor plan, you're worried about all this stuff. You shouldn't be worrying about how our product makes your product so much better. You should be able to just plug it in and go. And in the meantime, we're rooting for you. And when you're when it's time to graduate, we will have that conversation. And you will graduate into an official customer. And that's how we celebrate your success. Um, that's kind of fun. That's really cool. Completely different package though. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense though, because one, there are two different needs. Right. And this is green space. Like every, there's no product-led growth formula. I mean, there, there's a formula in marketing it to some extent. There's a formula in how you do the sales process with it. it those are guide paths. Unlike here are some best, best case scenarios, here are use cases, here are some standards, but you can find a way to make your product interesting, at least to special audiences. If it doesn't work in a universal fashion, what is an important audience for you? Are you trying to break into fintech? Are you trying to break into healthcare? How do you appeal to those organizations? Is leading with product the better way to do it? And that's, that's just experimentation and planning and daydreaming. Correct me here, but I feel like if it was up to you, you would always lead with product. I hate, so I've been a salesperson for a very long time. And there's a difference between leading with value and leading with price. And there's a difference between selling your product and letting your product sell itself. And I would much rather discuss with someone their needs or in that whole jobs to be done framework go here are needs that we assume you have here are ways that we solve for it and we have solved for it for others because your scenario feels similar to their scenario am i close oh yeah 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 you're close perfect try it try it does that do we haven't even discussed budget or money or anything else. We're talking about a similar scenario with someone that's in a similar situation, making that assumption that there's going to be a similar budget, similar long-term needs, similar selling process, like 
you don't have to worry about leading with that dollar value. I'm also a strong believer, like post pricing online, do not keep it hidden. The contact us for pricing. There, there are software models that are complicated enough and a la carte and pieces and everything else. You have to do that. Um, but you shouldn't have to do it all the time. There should be elements of your product where they could buy off the shelf, non-bespoke, off the rack, ready to wear stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, for me, that would be great. You have this ready to wear. You've already addressed all their concerns and answers. They're qualifying themselves. They're, they're self-banting. And I do not like bant, but bant, on, bant to yourself works. Do I have the budget? Do I have the time to do this? Is it timely to do this? Do I actually have the need? And am I in control enough where I can make this decision? Yes, 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 and yes. Okay, click, here's my credit card information. Oh, I'll get billed two weeks from now and it'll be monthly from there on out. Awesome, good. How do I cancel? Oh, I just I just go onto my, my login here and I click cancel at the bottom, perfect, great. And you don't make me answer 55 pages of questions and call in a phone number to cancel? Even better. Even better even better and that's great i would love for everything to be able to be led that way it's not possible but yes that would be great it feels product-led and we're saying product-led so much but it's really customer like putting yourself in the shoes of the customer of what the customer is actually going to want i mean think about we're all the customer at the end. You said this earlier, we're all the customer at the end of the day. How are you going to want to interact with this product that isn't going to feel like you're not being trusted or becoming an ambassador? Like, And it's having the freedom to control the product as you need it to get the job done at the end of the day. And as a business that feels really like you're letting go of so much control, but man, the payoff feels, I mean, after talking to you, it feels like a no-brainer. Yeah, I'm definitely evangelizing this. And that's why I keep trying to put the caveats in. You have to design it yeah. in a sustainable fashion. Everything that we're, like when I came on for social impact, that was sustainable. Because you don't want customers to feel that you're overcharging them so that you can give that discount to a nonprofit that they have no influence on or no understanding of or anything else. Same thing with startups. Oh, you're billing me full price for my up and coming competitor. No, no, we're, we're building sustainable platforms as an agnostic platform to support a safer world. That's. And then you're driving back to mission. Yeah. In, in, in my personal ethos and how I've been experiencing it again, not speaking as a representative of, of the brand, that's how I've been able to perceive it as, as a customer myself. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the really cool part. You know, it's what is the old hair club for men thing. Not only am I part of it, I'm, I'm also a customer like great. Yeah. So if I could neatly wrap this up with a bow, which, you know, I can't do because there's just so many good, so many so much good detail in here of like how to do this thing. But at the end of the day, ensuring that the company at its core has the right documentation, community, and customer success team to then build a freemium model on top of that in a way that gives power to the customer to control how much of the product they use and then market in a way that is solves a clear problem to solution based off of what your audience needs. And to your point, breaking into an audience and being able to package it up in a way for those audiences just is the ultimate value that you can give to your to your customers or prospects. Like that is just everything I took away from this. Perfect. You used a nice wide ribbon to make that bow and it and it worked out just fine. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. Like the only way product-led growth, the only way freemium works beyond making sure that it's a sustainable thing for what you're representing is developing that journey to get your freemium customer to a paid customer, to that VIP super duper paid customer and identifying, like finding the indicators. What are the upgrade indicators? What do they look like? When do we sniff it out? What tools do we use? 
to follow up. How do we create enablement and training for our teams? What part of this is automated? What a part of this needs to be hands-on? What point is intervention? Like if you're not planning against all of that, you, you really are just giving away the house and it is a full move and I wouldn't endorse that nor recommend it. And it's a, it's a bad utilization of it and it's dangerous. So that's what I'm saying. There's all, there's, a, there's definitely a heavy caveat. You have to plan for it. Yeah. And start you're, before you're turn it on tomorrow. Yeah. No, it's got to go back. It's got to go back to the company and how the company's built and then how the product sits on top of that. And then how the marketing and sales is able to do their job in relation to that. I totally love everything you're saying. I also don't, I mean, I think it's a heavy lift, but I also think if you're not doing anything today and all of a sudden you want to move to freemium, it's going to be a huge heavy lift. But I think there's a lot of elements in terms of what we're talking about of how to allow your, your audience to utilize your product even if you just opened up a piece of it, even if you didn't have multiple tiers or whatever just yet, like there's ways to start this um, and to try it out in a way to see how you can give that value to your, or or to what you were talking about from a nonprofit standpoint, like, okay, we gave certain percentages off for nonprofits or we gave the Cadillac away to the startups for the first year. Like there's, there's, a lot of elements and takeaways from this conversation that people can definitely get started with. And knowing that the freemium model can work, how can you start building that today so that in a year you have that ready to go and you can start building those ambassadors, you know, within that time. So before we close out, this was so good. And I like could keep going forever because I think there's so much more that you have to give, but our time, our time is here. And I think there's enough for people to definitely start working with. Um, before we go, my people first questions. So people get to know you beyond just being the, the entrepreneurial spirit that you are. Um, in the last two, you two ish years, have you picked up any new hobbies? Yes. Yes. And, uh, so when I became, when I started the stay at home dad stuff or the, the bro pair, our au pair had finally gone home and I got to to do that. And it was a wonderful thing. Um, there were many periods where I needed things to be quiet for a young child that you're trying to make sure stays napping. Um, but that were also um, kept your brain activity going. And I got very heavily into grilling and smoking. And to the extent we're on many different online games, because that's another thing you do while you're watching a sleeping child. My handle was smoked meats. And then the entrepreneur kicked in and people started asking me about the handle and they started asking about what I was doing. And then there were photos being uploaded of live cooks and webcam streams and everything else that I started selling barbecue around the United States to people that I was playing games with on the phone. And it was funding a, a hobby that was really, um, it's very soothing. There's something so Zen about just sit. It's, it's honestly, it's just sitting by a fireplace all day or all evening. That's great. It's a lot of fun. So yes, I, I did. That is my COVID super bad habit. Um, you know, we, they talk about those car collectors that, you know, the next title they get is also divorce papers. I'm starting to feel that way with, with buying barbecue equipment, but it happens. You funded it though, in your entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> Sadly, I have not been, I haven't been able to keep up with it and I haven't been able to, to ship it everywhere, but I, it's one of those things that if you're really special to me, uh, a nice ready to rock frozen pouch shows up best way to thaw barbecue best way to ship barbecue is to make it sous vide ah that makes People sense warm it up they warm it up in a bag it works out great doesn't it keeps it about how it was when it was fresh there we go there we go look at that and more value at the very end here for all of you smokers out there who love the barbecue that's awesome peter this conversation was packed i hope people feel invigorated to tackle some of these big challenges they're facing i'm so grateful for you and joining me thank you yeah thank you this is great it's it's fun to get to talk about it this way 
that was my conversation with Peter Wheeler. If you wish to learn more about Peter, Okta, and product-led growth, you can find Peter on LinkedIn. Link is in the show notes. I've also included Peter's newly launched podcast, Hey Good Chat. Be sure to check that out. He also has a website around his advocacy talk, and I've included that as well. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please like, subscribe, and share. This episode was brought to you by MKG Marketing, our agency that accelerates the mission of cybersecurity vendors via SEO, digital ads, and analytics. It's hosted by me, Carrie Gard, CEO and co-founder of MKG Marketing. Music mix and mastering done by Austin Ellison. If you'd like to be a guest, please visit mkgmarketinginc.com to subscribe.